Yeah, I can do without the tambourine. <laughs> I have special effects in my voice. I don't know, someone says there's something irritating sometimes when you yell, no, no, no. I want to I start by getting personal with you. I guess I won't be wandering today because I'm going to stay with the mic. Either that or I'll just start singing, then you'll want me to wander. But I, I want to I ask you something. Let's get personal. You don't have to yell it out loud, but I want you to think it through. What gets your blood flowing? What gets your emotions going? Your hair standing, as they say. Possibly pastors preaching overtime. Could be one of them. I'll be honest, mine, bad drivers. Bad drivers. I am so impatient. I am sorry. That is my biggest flaw. Now for my wife, who is here, which I don't think I asked her if I could say this, but that's all right. She'll forgive me. It was my family. Not as much the people themselves in the family, but I think for my wife, when we got married, what kind of got her going was the family dynamics that we had. See, my family tends to be a little more, as you can tell by me, expressive, okay? A little more uh, loud, uh, blunt, maybe some would even say confrontational at times. Whereas her family, well, let's put it this way. I had never, ever heard her parents argue with each other. I have never heard them raise their voice to each other. Where's the fun in that? I don't get it. But that's just the way they were. So imagine now Carol marrying into our family. Good debate's always something worthy of getting loud about. You know, I always told my kids the same thing. When I stop getting emotional loud, then you be worried. Because then I don't care anymore. But right now, that's the way it is. It's always interesting. So I look at family dynamics and how within the family, sometimes we create almost a subculture. There are certain rules in families, right, written or unwritten, even how we learn to relate to one another emotionally and how we respond. Every family does it a little bit different. You know, I always told my kids, you know, someday you're going to be laying on a couch talking to a stranger because of our family dynamics, but just warning you right now. But it is intriguing to see, and it's it very interesting that in time you begin to see how as a parent you imprint upon your children. Every once in a while I'll listen to my children and I'll go, that sounds really familiar. I go, oh, yeah, that's what I've been saying for the last 20 years. And it finally sunk in. They're repeating it and they think it's their own thought. So I'm kind of snickering inside feeling good that something made it through and got in. But good or bad, we all know this as parents, we impact our children. In fact, I think I even have a few impatient drivers amongst my children as well, and I'm not sure where they picked that up from. So here's where I'm going with all this. Let me ask you this. What gets God going emotionally? What, what is it that pulls at God's heartstrings? Now, Scripture doesn't leave us clueless as to some of those dynamics about God. And so we, we, we hear and get little tidbits of little gold nuggets of truth. And so we are told that Jesus, as he walked this earth, he, you know, he grieved over the loss of his friend Lazarus. In fact, we're told he was deeply moved and troubled. And then we read in John eleven thirty three, a few verses later, that, you know, the easiest verse to memorize in the Bible, Jesus wept. 
And so we can relate to that, an emotional God. And so scriptures don't hide God's emotions. They're not secret to mankind, whether it's anger, joy, grieving. We get this picture from the Bible that God has emotional responses. And so then we further read by biblical authors, guided by the Holy Spirit, I might add, wrote consistently the need of human beings, in a sense, to tap into those emotional parts of our existence. We weren't supposed to hide from them. I, I believe that's part and parcel of our being created in the image of God. And so I look to our text this morning, which is in 1 Peter 1.22, and we begin to pick up some of this. And so Peter writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, love one another deeply from the heart. You know what I think moves God emotionally? Like most parents, his children. His kids, especially, as Peter says, if they're getting along. If they're buying into the parent's belief system and, and his dreams for his children. See, I have, a, I have this classic image of my father, and, and he's passed away, but it, it's just great. You know, my dad was typical, get on the road, travel for hours on end, and that's a great holiday, right? Just going to get there. You pass the semis. You don't want to be passed by them again because we always went to B.C., so the bathroom became an empty bottle. We're not stopping, right? But he kind of always forgot something. He forgot that his kids, the three boys, were in the back seat. And so what would happen, typically almost every trip, is we would become a little irritating. We would become loud. And so he would discipline us. Now, he didn't discipline by stopping the car. No, no, no. We wouldn't want those semis to pass now, would we? No, no. This is the image I have of my dad for years and years and years. Driving the car, yelling at us, and doing this, reaching back with his back hand, trying to reach us. It only laughed louder because his arms were never long enough. But we knew we'd get it when we finally did stop. And, and so I'm looking at that image and, and this parenting and this one, and I'm thinking sometimes, I am so glad that there's not this extended hand of God reaching out from the heavens when we disobey, when, when we rebel against his plans. But I do believe when God sees his children finally getting it, Almost like he's hearing himself repeated because they're finally grasping onto it. And they've finally bought into his purpose and his ideals and his beliefs. He becomes this one very proud parent. And likewise, we are told when he sees us rejected, when he sees his children turn away and rebel, he's crushed. And so we read throughout the Bible these constant warnings and scripture to, to, as I said last week, to guard that inner heart, to guard that inner core of who we are, to protect it, to do all that we can so that we do and fulfill what God determined. And so even this, this, this past couple of months, we've had the I have had the privilege, my family as well, to meet a young girl, and I'm not going to give her a name or nothing, but let's just say she's, she's young, she's 18, and she has so many physical issues, more than any one person should have to have, especially at that at young of an age. And yet, here's where I'm going. I would never have known she had these issues. Unless someone who was close to her told me. 
Because she was always happy. She was contagious. She would be quoting verses on Facebook. She would be giving God glory in everything. She would bring God into every part. She wasn't negative. She wasn't blaming God. And I sat in awe. And and I was just telling my wife, as we're walking around the lake this morning, I'm going, you know, is it interesting? I says, the influences this this one girl had on, on, on my two children are still at home. And just how quickly, in light of something so good and positive, and someone tuned into God and His glory, how it just rubbed off onto my kids, just like that. In the same way that in a negative way, you know, my daughter, and I, I'm not ashamed to say this, she was up to 5 o'clock this morning. And you go, whoa, what a bad father. No, she was at some friends she hadn't seen for a long time from high school. I loved it. She came home this morning. And by the way, it's, I know I'm up there. She came home this morning. And, and she said, Dad, I wish I could have been home like at one. I said, I just, I listened to my friends from high school. I listened to their language. I listened to their thought process. I listened to where they're going in life. And I'm going, I can't believe in a sense I was part of that before. And she turned to this girl who she know, and she says, I want to be friends with her. What she's done already for me and encouraging me in my faith. See, a truth, I believe my heavenly father and his family are trying to imprint upon me one of his children. I believe God's desire for us, as I said last week, is less about the circumstances themselves that we encounter in life, but more about how those circumstances will shape us. And so Philip Yancey, an author, writes, Life is not a problem to be solved, but a work to be made. And that work may well utilize much raw material that we would prefer to do without. God's goodness does not mean we will not get hurt. Not in this fallen world, at least. His goodness goes deeper than pleasure and pain. Somehow, he says, incorporating both. And I looked at that statement. I love that comment. The raw material that we would prefer to do without. See, sometimes we know the raw material in life is the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Sometimes these raw material have names because it's people we would rather do without in our lives at this time. And then sometimes we know it just comes unannounced. Sickness comes unannounced. Accidents, well, they're just that, accidents. And you can't control the family you're born into now, can you? Some of us have spent a lifetime complaining about the family and who I got, and we complain and whine. But scripture tells us that when we fully understand, when we accept what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, we are now part and parcel of a new family. We are joining in. And like all families, there exists certain truths, a certain culture, certain principles and ideals that are now expected. Certain way of doing things. God has an ideal picture for his family. Principles to live by that we were induced to right from the outset of creation. But we know due to humanity, due to freedom of choice, due to a number of factors, a lot of them just called life, ideal of what God expected as a parent can get lost in the reality of how we live. 
You know, as a parent, I was naive enough to say, if I just loved my kids with everything I had, they're going to feel so bad when they disappoint me and I feel crushed and I cry that they are just going to turn back to me like that and they're going to listen. Not so. Didn't happen. But God is not naive. But that doesn't change his expectations for each and every one of us. So when Peter writes to his listeners, you got to understand the context of these words that he's calling his children to live within these family ideals of God come in some of the worst circumstances that we could ever imagine. So Peter's writing in the time when, you know, Nero's kicking about in AD 67. We're Christians, you know, they're coated in wax. They were hung what they called on axle trees. They were set on fire in Nero's garden to keep it alight at night. Others were dressed in skins of wild animals. They were thrown to the dogs. Of course, we all know about the Colosseum and the lions and everything that took place there. Simply put, joining God's family was a little riskier than it has been for most of us. And yet it is in this context... It is in these circumstances, in that reality, that God's family principles were still to apply. Christians, children of God, were called to live differently, to not forget the ideals. And so things like answering hate with love, intolerance with peace and and acceptance of all. We're supposed to face fear with joy. And anticipation. You know, it was Peter who wrote earlier in 1 Peter 1.6. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you know, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, that's who he's writing to. Because they were. Again, this, this, there's a the principle there of there's this internal success that God expects or an external success that we often buy into. How else do you explain someone talking about rejoice in the same sentence that you've got to suffer grief and all kinds of trials? It's a different way of looking at life. And so many times we sing about it. I sing about it. It's great in theory, but, you know, reality is I don't buy into it all the time. And so the next verse in our text, in 1 Peter, he talks about this whole new parameters. And so he brings in the eternal. And he says, for you have been born again. He says, people, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So the foundations upon what we have, as I said last week, is different. We don't live with everything bolted down to this side of the grave. As long as life may seem or as short as it may seem, it's nothing compared to eternity. And that's why Abraham, put a tent up, man. You're not staying here. You're just a stranger. You're an alien in the land right now. So that's the basis, the foundation, the premise that we all need to work with. We don't buy into everything being about here. That's got to be a foundational factor that we all understand. And so Peter talks in a book called Everyday Church that our church has been reading through. There's a quote. He says, we are to be an alternative family in which those who have become unfamily find a home. We are to be an alternative place of belonging for displaced exiles. The word that gave us birth is imperishable. So our brotherly love should be imperishable. It's a new standard. It's a new way of looking at family and and community and the world that we live in. 
We are bound together by eternal truths, imperishable word of God. And so that's why Peter will use such strong language as saying, guys, if you can't love one another deeply, if you can't love from the heart, he said, let me give you another picture. I love it, Peter. He's a visual guy like me. And so we read in, in 1 Peter 2, 3, he says, like newborn babies, he says, crave spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have, you've tasted, you've tasted that the Lord is good. That's a great image. It's the one I've seen, you know, with my granddaughter. I have two grandchildren now. And, and, and my granddaughter, boy, she loved her formula and her milk. And you want to talk about single-mindedness? You watch a baby go after that bottle. Nothing else in life matters at that moment, right? I'm sitting there. You feed them. They're sucking back on this bottle like there's nothing else. And you even have to kind of pull it away and say, breathe. Breathe in between here, right? You know, I got burp on Just breathe. And they're going, ah, nothing else would tempt them at that moment. And I look at that, and again, and I'm sitting there going, what do you crave, Glenn? What do you crave in life? What creates that single-mindedness in me? What is it, as I said later, that stirs my emotions? What is it that gets my blood going? What is it that keeps me up at night that I can't even sleep? What is it that I will cry about? See, your heart is always going to be a great indicator as to what truly exists in your inner world, in your soul. The center of who you and I are as human beings. The source of our drive on this existence, on this earth. And it's a battle. You and I both know it's a battle. Because there are going to be always, as my daughter found out last night, these old influences. The, the, the culture of the family that we live in as a whole. And, and it, what they have created as what is important in this life. Practices that run counter what God our Father intended for us. Treasures that are going to tempt us on an ongoing basis. And you're going to have to slap yourself and say, no, no, I, I don't need that i got to come back to God's word. And so even with regards to human relationships and peer pressure and what we're afraid everyone will say about us, you know, it's going to be in constant battle as to my self-worth, you know, where I feel important. If you tell me I preach good, but if you say I was terrible, I'm going to beat myself up. I'm not asking what God's thinking at the moment. I'm dependent upon the peers around me. And we all do it. It's not just our children. We're always trying to get approval of those around us as if that is the only thing that counts. And there's going to be a battle for our ideals in this world and goals and for integrity and for character. And even truth itself will be in competition all the time with advancing in the company or tell the truth. Economics or convenience. You know, I had a foreman in the job in Saskatoon and he's coming up to me and he was a compulsive liar. And he knew it. And then we have the owners come, and, and the whole thing was falling behind. And then he was saying, okay, Glenn, you, you got to tell when, when the owners come, uh, you know, don't tell them you're here by yourself with one guy. Tell them you got a, a big crew. And I looked at him, and he says, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you need to understand this. I will not lie for you. I won't lie as best as my ability. I won't lie. I said, so if the owner comes, this is what you can tell them. There are two crews, a day crew. And a night crew. You just don't have to tell them it's the same crew. I was going 15-hour days. 
I said, but I will not lie. And I even told him, I says, and for that matter, then you know I won't lie to you either. If I say I'm going to try and get this done, I will. I want saying it to just promise you stuff in thin air. It's the culture of where we live. Everyone lies to each other. And so you're always going to have this competition going on in life into the principles and the subculture of what God expects and what we're going to be battling on an ongoing basis that's going to tear and deteriorate at the core of who you and I are, children of God. And so what's going to have to happen is we need a single-mindedness. If we are not on this, if we are not pursuing this, if we are not chasing this, we're going to be in trouble. And so Peter even expounds on this focus. He says, here, let me tell you what this focus even more looks like. And so we read in 1 Peter 2.1, therefore, he says, you know what? Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. I love that every kind because we like to categorize, don't we, right? Well, I didn't really lie about the person. I just talked to you about them. How many times God had to say, Glenn, will you shut up and quit talking about your family to other family members? Because that falls in the category of slander of every kind. In fact, I even got so bad. I said, I told my wife, when we go home to Winnipeg a few weeks ago, you kick me if I begin to talk about someone else in my family in a way that is they're not there to defend themselves. I said, I give you the right to physically kick me. I do not want to get caught in that. That is slander. See, do you hear the craving? Do you hear the work that it's going to cost us to achieve this? See, the scripture paints that picture. You know, whether it's a wineskin or something, the old is gone, the new has come. The new is going to look different, and it's going to take work. How did Jesus put it? Eventually, everyone should look at us and know that you're my followers, that you're my disciples. Why? Because you just love one another differently. But as I said last week, here's another reality that's going to add to the problem of doing this. It makes it more difficult. See, humanity has always fought against God since the beginning of time. We know that. The sphere of influence from those who have tasted that the Lord is good, that Peter talks about, though, has diminished significantly in, in our world. And we all know that. In our generation, in our time, I mentioned it last week, sadly, the culture has moved on. Without God. hundred years ago looked quite a bit different than it did from today. We are no longer shaped by the Bible story. In fact, they say, as I said last week, we live in what they call a post-Christian culture. In other words, we live in a period of time following where the decline of Christianity in its importance on society is just diminished. I have a guy working for me from Quebec, and he's great in English, and, and he was with me in that, and I would never pin him down and preach at him. I'd always wait till he asked me something. But the one time I happened to say something, and I used the word sin. And he looks at me and goes, well, what's that? <laughs> I go, what? He said, well, what's sin? I said, you've never heard the word sin? No. I had no idea what the word sin was. And so there exists this strong resistance to Christianity. And these family dynamics, it's going to become more and more. We've told that in scriptures. It's going to become more of an issue for people. In fact, we're going to be considered those who are just fighting against trying to find world peace or whatever. We, we all know that. What's going to have to take? I thought for years, you know, if I create a service that just draws them in, and God used it, by the way, but that somehow if I could compete with Hollywood, and create something that would draw people that gave up on church. That'll do it. 
And to the abilities of everyone around, we all try different things to draw our neighbors or our friends. What's it going to take? Churches are on the decline. They're in search of pastors left and right, and the guys like me that are saying, no, thank you, right now. What's it going to take? There's a point in Scripture when Paul came to Mars Hill. Do you remember in Athens? Again, Athens at that time was the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. You know, it was the literary capital of the ancient world. If you were the who-who of anyone was smart, you were in Athens. It's a financial place of Greece, home to philosophers, orders, sculptors, painters. You name it, that was the place to be. And it was here we're told that the backdrop of this, that the Apostle Paul, and by the way, there was no Christian influence. It kind of was non-existent at that time. And he shows up with this message. And we read in Acts 17, 16 to 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, a group of friends, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I want to share with you very quickly as I get close to wrapping up. What I think needs to happen for Paul and for Peter and what needs to happen to us. See, we know that Christianity began to change the world. We know the influence he had and how it began to make an inroad into cultures around the world. And I asked myself, well, was it simply the ability of Paul's preaching? Well, he himself said later in Scripture he wasn't even a good preacher. Well, did they come up with this unique service or some kind of method or technique or seminar on how to, you know, share the faith? Not that we know of. So one's left to wonder, what was it? See, I believe it's what Paul alludes to in the text I just read you, what we pick up. Let me read it to you once again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. See, the Greek word there, and I don't want to kind of say it because I'll probably butcher it, but it gets translated distressed. Other translations make it that his spirit was being provoked. His spirit was being stirred. See, I looked at all that and I said, oh, I'm a bottom line guy. Here's the bottom line. I think this is what got his blood going. This is what made the Apostle Paul cry. What raised the emotions deep in his soul and in his interior world because he was fixated on God and God's ideals. It was the lost. It was the confused. It was the evil. It was the blindness. It was so rampant. It just He couldn't be settled with that. It wouldn't do to just fit in. So both Peter and Paul allude to us that at the core of who we are, the heart of who we are, ask it, we monitor your internal motivations. Pay attention to what is it in life that really bothers you. And if it's simply that a Jerome again is no longer in the flames, we have a problem. If it's simply always about the weather and how poorly it is and that we can't get out and do what we want, we have a problem. If it's simply the taxes and what I owe and the work I need to do and the children and they don't listen. and the, If nowhere in there I'm concerned about lost people, about my neighbors, maybe my children. If nowhere in there, if I've been pleading and praying with God to do a work. If I could care less who walks by this church every day and I don't even give it a second thought but I'm concerned about what we do in here. I gave a top 10 list at Brentview of the things, the last 10 things I thought about church. It's just to show you where my state of heart has been. And I told him the list went like this. The coffee's too strong. 
I hate the sloped floor in the sanctuary, I told Ken earlier. My static nerve in my leg, it drives me nuts. Worship's too long. Uh, there was, I, I'm going through this list, and nowhere in there did I care that my neighbor wasn't sitting in church with me. Nowhere. It wasn't on my radar. See, I see a lot of people that have that distress in church that Paul had when he saw Athens. But the distress often, sadly, the majority of the time was not about the vast idols worshipped in Calgary or the lost souls. It wasn't distress caused by, you know, a heart broken for a fellow brother and sister who's hurting. It was distress over these peripheral things. And I understand, you, you need parameters, <laughs> you need rules, you need this. Don't get me wrong. But what's making you cry? What's moving you? What keeps you up at night? And is our distress more judgmental distress? Steve Sacone writes, If we are not distressed, stirred, or troubled that people without God desperately need him, and that they are looking in all the wrong places, we will never communicate effectively in the culture we live. Very basic principle. <laughs> if I don't care, I won't care. When I did Life Spring, my whole goal was to reach the lost. I, I bought into it. And you know what? God honored that. He used it. Countless people came to Christ. We had prayer cards. I would never let anyone in our church, where's your prayer card? Who are you praying for these days? To have an impact on. I don't have a prayer card anymore. Hasn't been a part of me for a while. And I ask myself, what am I craving? We can't just think that the church is going to be, that the world around us is going to be like us, that somehow they're going to come in here and understand our language and things. Oh, yeah, I'll buy into it. No. It's a different world. Your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids, they're, it's further and further away from God. Here's what we do understand. This is the truth we all can understand. Peter said, all men are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. A few spelling mistakes there. The reality of our existence as human beings and the truth that should drive every single one of us, every morning, every day, every afternoon, every decision we ever make should be this principle. Peter hits it again, that come the end of the world, whenever that may be, there's only going to be a couple things left. God and his truth and the souls of humanity. And so he writes in 2 Peter 3.18, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, here's the question we all need to answer. What kind of people... What kind of people ought you to be? If you know this truth, if you buy into this picture, how should that change what we do? How should that change my inner soul, my motivation? We know that the gospel has the power to change. It's not about my ability to convince or to argue. People are going to look and see, is it real for Glenn? Or is it just something he plays with on Sunday? I'm going to close with a quote written in Everyday Church. We do not read the Bible simply to fill our minds, but to change our hearts. 
We do not read the Bible simply to be informed, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We read the Bible to stir our affections, our fears, our hope, our love, our desire, our confidence. We read it until our heart cries out, the Lord is good. What is your heart crying out? We all fall into that trap. I am not going to throw any stones here because I am constantly finding myself battling priorities. I find myself easily slipping into the ideals of this world when it comes to business and work and everything around us. And then I see little snippets like this young lady who comes in who stands proud for her faith regardless of her circumstances. And all the preaching I did as a dad in the world seemed like nothing compared to her encounters with my two children. And they saw the reality of a life in Christ, regardless of the circumstances. And that motivated them. What's going to motivate people to finally ever come into this place or listen to you preach? They want to know you believe it and you've been changed by it. And it's everything you crave. And they're going to see there are moments you're not. But then you learn to say, I'm sorry, I apologize, forgive me, God and those around me. But I've got to come back again. Never, ever give up. Crave it with all that you have. And then you watch what God begins to do through your life. To your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to strangers. That foreman in that job in Saskatoon, the one time, and I had my... Two guys with me at that time. We were a huge crew. And we came walking over there. And, and there had been a few trades because of his compulsive lying that he left. And that these trades left and quit. And it was just chaos everywhere. And everyone's upset. And he's been writing me for things and that. And there were lies. And I confronted him on some of them. And, but I just tried to keep a positive attitude in everything I was doing there. And I said, I'm not going to give up on God for this. And I remember he pulled me aside with my two guys who were not believers, and he said, Glenn, why don't you just tell me to, and he used a very bad word, like everyone else does. I said, well, one, I just don't talk like that. I said, two, what good's it going to (laughs) do? I said, I just don't believe that's the way you handle life. He still calls me. I've never had a foreman call me again (laughs) once the job's built. He still calls me. And sometimes you can tell it's just to talk. He'll ask a dumb question. So what do I do with a stain in a carpet? You clean it. Oh, okay. I go, never forget. Never give up. Allow God to saturate every part of your decision and then watch him do work. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you. You are a great and an awesome God. The fact that you are so patient with us, the fact that you're not reaching with an arm from the heaven to backhand us when we constantly turn on you, that you are so loving, merciful, that alone is just unbelievable. And I know you have asked us to model after you, to grab onto the principles that your family has instituted in this reality. Principles that seem so counter to what the culture often believes. 
So much so many can't even believe of a loving Heavenly Father. They've never had that experience. Someone that's for us and not against us. And so, God, I'm just praying that each and every one of us, regardless of where we're at in our walk with you, that this morning we would walk away craving a little more, hopefully a lot more, that we would saturate ourselves in your presence and your word with your people, that we would be so focused on our inner core of who we are that we would recognize a hint of anything that is beginning to work against your principles, And so, yes, sometimes that means the things we watch, the things we participate in, things that are just not helping, as Peter said, to take a work ethic against anything that will cause a deterioration in the soul, in my heart, that will turn me against you. Give us that boldness, that strength to speak, to encourage one another, to love each other deeply, regardless of what someone has ever said or done to us. This is not about me. This is about the glory that you deserve, the souls that need to find hope in you and salvation through Jesus Christ. The world that is blindly walking in a direction that constantly turns against you. Will you use us in Jesus' name? Amen.